course, it's the life of King David uh, over these last uh, three months, I guess now, perhaps, or getting, getting near there. Uh, and today's Palm Sunday, so I decided that today, rather than kind of going back to 1 Samuel or 2 Samuel, uh, today we will be looking instead um, at the Gospel of Matthew, at the story uh, that we typically associate with Palm Sunday, of course. Uh, next week we'll do that as well, and then we'll jump back uh, into 2 Samuel uh, or into the, one of the Psalms the following week after Easter. So today we're going to look at the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, verses one through 11. So I invite you to hear these words. When they, being Jesus and the disciples, had come near Jerusalem and had reached Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village ahead of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this, the Lord needs them. And he will send them immediately. And this took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. And they brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. And a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of him and that, were, and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking, who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God and let us pray. God, we pray that you would be with us this morning as we look at this story about the road to Jerusalem. We pray, God, that you would be with us, that you would open up our ears and our eyes And our hearts to you. That we would journey with you to that city. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts, will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So today is Palm Sunday. This is a day of great celebration. Hopefully you kind of felt that even in the rendering as I was reading the scripture. This is this great day when uh, the people are so excited about this Jesus who is marching to Jerusalem. And so they've uh, done everything they can. They take off their coats and they kind of put it in front of the animals. And then they, uh, they take off tree branches and they begin to spread that. This is this kind of majestic parade, if you will. And they are all shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. And so it's this kind of exciting time. And we know, of course, that in many ways, uh, the, those who are gathered don't exactly get uh, what this is going to look like, this new kingdom under Jesus, but they are excited nonetheless because they know that things are about to change. Sometimes when it comes to moments like this, these kind of great celebration, these parades, it is easy to kind of become so enamored by that particular event that perhaps you 
you miss out on seeing what exactly occurred to help that particular event happen. In other words, it's easy to overlook all the other little smaller things that occurred in order for this parade to be this great day of celebration. As I was thinking about that, I was reminded of, um, of a passage that we talked about several weeks ago from the Psalms. It was one of David's Psalms. It was the 145th Psalm. And that fifth verse of that particular chapter says this. It says, one generation shall loud or, or give praise uh, to your works and to one another, and they shall declare your mighty acts. What is that saying? Basically, it's just saying, that we share our faith stories with others and that no faith story is disconnected from another one. When we talked about this, uh, we, uh, I brought up a quote by Paul Meir who says this about our faith stories. He says that they are string, they're like a string of stories that are woven back and forth like a large tapestry shaped on the loom of experience. There is not one story that doesn't touch another. If you weren't here, let me remind you of what I said about that. If this was a large tapestry, if you can just imagine it, um, and if we are here, let's say the time is going in this direction, and there's each of us, right? If you go just a little bit back to the left, you will see other people who are connected to you and to your faith story. One of those people is the first person who ever told you about Jesus. But then there are other people as well, of course, and, and those are the people who, who perhaps help to cultivate an even richer discipleship in your life. And and as you keep going back, you can see that those people were actually touched by people who had come before. And then you, get, you can just keep going back further and further. And you see in this kind of this kingdom of God tapestry, the way that all of our faith journeys are connected one to another, all the way back through the New Testament and through the Old Testament. And I, I was reminded of that this particular week because I realized I want us to start right about here today. This is Palm Sunday, okay? Does everyone see that on the tapestry? Do you see? Can you see the palms? Anyone not see that? Good. All right. I want us to go back a couple of times, but first I just want us to go back. It's still Palm Sunday. It's just a, it's just a few hours before and what you see, if you look at it, you see two disciples. Do you see those two disciples? Good, good, sure, whatever, just get, keep going, yeah. You see two disciples, right? And these two disciples are there, and Jesus is talking to those two disciples. And he's telling them, here's what I want you to do. He gives them a very simple assignment. I want you to go into the village of Bethpage right there. And I want you to go, and you're going to see two animals. Now, it's a little confusing here. Matthew's version seems a little bit different. Two animals versus one animal. There's a lot of questions as to what that means. I'm not going to go into all of that uh, today. So you can, you can, but just picture today two, two animals on the tapestry. You got it? If you don't get it, we'll keep coming back to it. Okay. The 11 o'clock, they have plenty of time. We got, we'll be here for a while. So there they are. And you see it, and he says, I want you to go in there, and I want you to get these animals, okay? And, and so you're going to go and grab them, and then you're going to bring them back. And, okay, if somebody says, what are you doing, right, which would be pretty normal, he said, if they do that, you just tell them the Lord needs them, right? It's a very, very simple task. And so those two disciples, they go. Now, they have no idea what's going to happen, but they've seen Jesus enough, and they've learned enough over the years that you just kind of do what Jesus says. Things work out better when you do what Jesus says. And so, so, so they go, and they do that, and they bring it back. And then, 
Jesus is able to ride the donkey toward Jerusalem. Then and only then, all of a sudden, do you have the cloaks and the palm branches and the shouts of Hosanna. All of those things. But we cannot forget that it all started with these very small, somewhat mundane act of obedience by these two disciples. It begins in this incredibly small way, but then, as Albert Schweitzer points out, all of a sudden, those two disciples are a part of the fulfilling of the promise of God. Those two disciples who did that really small, simple act that they thought nobody would ever know anything about, all of a sudden now they are in a part of this great mission of God. They are a part of helping to fulfill prophecy. They get to be a part of this momentous kingdom of God act, all because they simply decided to go and to unwrap these animals and to walk them back to Jesus. Scott McKnight says this is the way that the kingdom of God almost always works. When it comes to this tapestry, what he's saying is the tapestry is pretty much full of little small acts. And it's easy for us to forget that. But of course, this is exactly how Jesus lived the kingdom of God. You know, when he gives the parables about what's the kingdom of God, like what does he say? It's like a mustard seed, the really small seed. And it starts like that. And then it grows large enough that birds of the air can come and build their nests in them. That it always starts in these incredibly small ways. When I got back from Israel, um, a month and a half ago or so, we talked about the Sea of Galilee. One of the great surprises to me was how small the Sea of Galilee was. Where we were staying, you could see the whole thing, right? And after this, um, fellow pilgrims uh, to Israel said, yeah, you know what? We, we were kind of surprised by that as well. And, and that's the thing, right? Jesus, Jesus could have gone and spent his whole time in Jerusalem or even better in Rome, where immediately he would have had a massive audience, where immediately, right, he would have gotten this great hearing. His voice and message would have been heard. But what does Jesus do instead? He goes into weddings. He goes into people's homes. He walks along this relatively small lake, if you will. To call it a sea is to have a Napoleonic complex, quite frankly. (laughs) Right? And he does those little things. And this is the way the ministry of God works. And it is so important for us to remember this. We talk about this, but it is hard for us to be convinced of this because in our day and age, of course, what what is most celebrated are those massive events, whatever is trending, all of those things. But what makes up the kingdom of God, what changes the tapestry of time are not those massive acts. either these small acts of love and encouragement and hope and hospitality. After I did this kind of tapestry, um, actually this was just uh, recently, uh, a ZPCer came up to me or, or, or called me and said, hey, I have a story about a tapestry thing that just happened. I, I, I want to let you know about it. And so, uh, and so we talked about it. He said, okay, you know, um, um, uh, this was many years ago, like four decades or so ago um, um, when I was in college. So this guy's a little older. He's here. That's why I'm kind of making fun of him right now. So, so this is, he said, he said, I was in college. And he said, you know, there was this other guy there, and he played on the team, and, you know, was a friend. And, 
Um, and so, but, but that guy, the friend, has gone on to be, have a kind of an established career as a, as a college basketball coach, right? A kind of a, a great career of doing that. But, but within the last year, he was uh, diagnosed with a brain tumor. Um, and so uh, thankfully, he seems to be doing uh, better now after treatment. And uh, so, but the ZPC wanted to reach out to him just to check in, see how he's doing. And so he, he did that. He, he emailed him just to check in. And the, the coach, you know, uh, uh, wrote him back and said, you know, he's retired now. He decided to go ahead and retire so we could focus on some other things and, and just kind of caught him up with how things were going and, and then signed off. That was fine. Okay, great. Good to know. But then the ZPC uh, told me he sent a subsequent email the coach did. And he said, you know, I want to let you know about something. He goes, back when we were in college, that very first week, he said it was incredibly rough. It was a horrible week. But when you came up and said to me, you know what? I have never seen anyone guard this particular player who was very good. I've never seen anyone guard him as well as you did. It changed everything. In fact, he said... I think about that moment is, what, is the thing that kind of catalyzed this whole career of mine. This whole shift in what I was going to do, this whole kind of call of God. He didn't use those words. Those are the words that I would use. The whole sense of his career changed because of those small words of encouragement. Now, I asked the CPC, do you even remember saying that? Do you know what he said? No! Why would you remember something like that? Some little word, some little word of encouragement that changed his whole trajectory. See, this is what I want us to think about. When it comes to Palm Sunday, you can think about the celebration, and you should. But what you also have to think about is that little act of obedience, right, that those two disciples did. When we think about what does the kingdom of God look like, we think, oh, it's all these big things. Sometimes it is a simple word of encouragement. It is one one sentence that says, hey, I think you did a really good job of guarding that person. That's it. And it can change a complete life. It can change how people understand who they are and God's call in their lives. It can change everything. But we prefer to focus on the big and the exciting sometimes because of the fact that that means that then we don't have to actually do it. But all of us are called to those little Acts of love and grace and hospitality and encouragement because the whole tapestry begins to change when we are faithful to those small things. But now, I want us to go back even further. I want us to trace our way all the way back a thousand years from that Palm Sunday. To the life of David. Now I said that we're not going to be talking about David today, and that's mostly true, I suppose. We're not talking about 1 Samuel or 2 Samuel or the Chronicles. But did you notice that David is not absent from this passage? Maybe you heard, maybe you didn't. Here's what it says. It says, Hosanna, they were saying, they were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of of David. So here they are on this Palm Sunday, but they know that it is connected to what happened back here during the life of King David. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean, the son of David? Why are they saying Hosanna to the son of David? Well, 
you probably know, I mean, some of the more common reasons why this would have been the case. It's this connection, of course, between Jesus and, and kind of the royal lineage of King David. That was important to have that connection. Uh, it's a sign, likely, that, that they believe that this is the Messiah, right? The son of David is the Messiah. And they see Jesus as being that particular person. And so you have this, this kind of, you know, this clear connection between who God is or who Jesus is and who David is. Even in the genealogy that we see in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, the very first chapter, you can go back and look at it if you want to, it begins with a genealogy that begins with Abraham and goes all the way to Jesus. But there's great intentionality with Matthew that it goes through the line of David. It was incredibly important that they see this connection, right? That they see this connection. In fact, some would say that what, they, what they're saying is that they see the connection between the covenant that God made with David that, that Pastor Scott talked about a month or so ago with who Jesus is. So that's the son of David. That's the connection. But then this week... I began to ask whether or not there wasn't a different part of this connection as well with the son of David. And the reason why I asked that this week, I've never asked the question before, it's never even, I've never really thought about it, is because for the last two weeks, you know what we have not been talking about? We've not been talking about the great feats of David. We've not been discussing how powerful David was. We've not been talking about what a great job he did with Israel. We've not said how he, how he brought the capital of Jerusalem. That's not what we've been talking about when it comes to the life of David. What have we been talking about? If you've been here, you know we've been talking about David and Bathsheba and his sin and brokenness. We've been talking about how David made sure that Uriah was killed. And then last week we talked about how Nathan, the prophet, confronts him and we talked about David's confession in other words, it's almost impossible after having really experienced that and saying, I'm gonna, you know, I want to think about who David really is completely. It's almost impossible when you hear son of David to not also remember not just his great feats, but also his brokenness and his sin. And interestingly enough, it may just be that Matthew sees this as well. If you go back later on today, if you want to, or you can just take my word for it, it doesn't matter to me. If you go back to the first chapter and you see the genealogy from Abraham to Jesus, it goes through David. I told you that already. But then here's what it says more explicitly as it goes through. It says, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now, why not just say Bathsheba. There are lots of different thoughts on this. Some would suggest that perhaps it's because he doesn't want to put a woman up there, that Matthew doesn't want a woman as a part of this, but that doesn't completely hold water because there are other women who are in that lineage, right? There are Rahab, there's Ruth. Both of them are mentioned in this lineage of Matthew. Others have suggested, well, I mean, maybe, maybe he's just trying to, you know, kind of brush Bathsheba, just try to kind of keep her under the rug. At least that's my idea. That could be another reason why. Perhaps that's what they were trying to do. But I kind of think, as others have argued, that perhaps the reason why he says the wife of Uriah is so that we will not forget the reality of the brokenness and the sin of David. 
Remember, while we might try to hide sin and brokenness, Scripture does not try to do that. In fact, remember, we've talked about this over the last couple of weeks, that we have to be honest about the fact that there is sin and brokenness in our world and in our churches and in our pastors, as I said two weeks ago, and that the effects and the ramifications of that are oftentimes incredibly painful. We said last week that we have to be willing to confess without caveat. Have you tried that? I've actually tried that this week. I want you to know it is not easy. That we cannot try to blame others for our own sin. That we cannot try and say, well, look at all the good things I've done. Pay no attention to this sin over here. We can't just try to downplay it. No, no, no. That we have to be as honest as possible. But when Scripture includes the son of David and includes in this genealogy the reality that Bathsheba was the wife of Uriah, when it includes the stories that we've heard over the last two Sundays, what it does is it gives us this remarkable opportunity if we see it and if we have the confidence to live into it, which is to begin to see that the brokenness and pain is not something from which we hide from, but that God actually used that from a thousand years ago to continue to weave into the reality of what we see now on this particular Palm Sunday. That that is not something that he tries to hide or that we try to cover up, but rather it is a part of the very story that comes to this very day when Jesus is marching toward Jerusalem and that God is going, is, is convinced and is going to do nothing but make sure that something beautiful comes out of that sin and that brokenness. When I was about six, maybe seven years old, I don't know for sure, we lived, um, we lived at the bottom of this, of this long hill. And um, I was just learning to ride a bike, so I wasn't that good at it. And, um, and I was at the top of the hill, and I had to get back down. And so I began to ride. Uh, I, the brakes weren't working. Now, I don't know. I was like six or seven, but probably I just didn't know how to use them. It's a real question in my mind. I don't know. All I know was I was picking up some speed. And this was not good. It was fun at first. You know how those things are. So as we started getting to the bottom of this street, the street kind of curved around, and I knew at least enough to know that if I tried to turn right now, I'm going to be in trouble. And so I didn't. I just kept going straight. And, and what, was, what was straight in front of me was the driveway of our neighbor's house. And so I was, all of a sudden I was in the driveway of my neighbor's house. Unfortunately, it, it still kept going down, so I just kept kind of picking up speed. And, and then at the very bottom of that driveway was their front door and, 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 and had a little step. I, as I recall, it's just like this, this high. Thankfully, I didn't flip or anything. I stayed on it. And then I came crashing into this big, massive potted plant that they had. Now, the good news is that even though I wasn't wearing a helmet, because this was before parents loved their children... <laughs> I'm just kidding. Love you, Mom, Dad. I survived. I felt okay, right? I was okay. So that's the good news. The bad news is the pot did not end so well. In fact, it was absolutely shattered. There were just pieces that were everywhere. 
You know, and I got up from that, and I, I mean, I had this feeling. I can still remember the feeling in, in the pit of my stomach. I thought, this is not good. And so, but I got on my bike, and I just kind of walked it back over to my house. And I walked in, and like a good mother would do, you know, she said, are you, are you okay? Is everything okay? Yeah, everything's fine. I told her what happened. And like a really good mother would do, she said, okay, march back down there to that house. Knock on their door. Tell them what you did and that you will pay them for that pot that you've broken. I don't know how many of you have the same kind of experience, but I have never forgotten that moment or what that was like. I am scarred forever, right? Which is a part of the reason why we love doing this to our children because we want them to be equally scarred, right? Those moments of confession, the trepidation, you know, I mean, the neighbor, I don't remember now who it was. I just remember they must have been eight or nine feet tall and very mean, very mean. But I've never forgotten about that. I mean, I don't remember a lot of things from when I was that age, but that's one of those stories that I will never forget. And it's kind of the story that I thought about this pot as soon as I heard a few years ago about, uh, about a Japanese form of, uh, of pottery making. There's a great chance that you already know about what this is. I, I had never heard of it. It's called kintsugi. Does everyone know what kintsugi is? I, hopefully I'm saying that right. I mean, it's kintsugi. I didn't know about it until a few years ago. And, and what kintsugi is, is it's this kind of po- this pottery um, um, that started around the 15th century in Japan. And they were kind of wrestling with what do they do when they accidentally break pottery, you know, that not everyone has a ton of materials. And so there's times when you want to make sure that, you know, if there's anything you can do to repair it, to, to make it better, you do. And so they were trying to figure out what they did. And they came up with a system. And what they would do, of course, is that they would, they would they'd find this lacquer that they would then begin to kind of put these pieces back together again. But what they then started doing is putting like little flecks, if you will, of gold and kind of in the midst of that to begin to slowly but surely starting to put those things together. So that rather than just kind of throwing the pottery away, as I'm sure my neighbor did, instead what they did was they tried to say, is there some way that we can make something beautiful out of this, right? And so, so here you can see some of this pottery here. You can see this pot, um, that, this bowl that was broken, and then they put that in. You can see this mug that they've used and... And then finally this red, and, and, and what they discovered, of course, or what we, just, what we see, of course, is that there's no hiding it. It's not like they said, okay, well, let's just try to figure out how we can do this so that nobody ever knows that this thing was broken. But instead, what they realized is that in the hands of the right creator, they could figure out a way both to say, yes, this thing is broken, but also to say, we believe that something beautiful can come out of this brokenness. And what, I, what I'm convinced of is that when it comes to our own sin and brokenness, or perhaps when it comes to those times in our lives when we have been the victim of someone else's sin or brokenness, that this is one of those images of this, of this pottery, it seems to me, that reminds us that God can make something beautiful even amongst the creation that is most broken and harmed. 
You see, I'm convinced that when God went through, we went through this genealogy, that he wanted Matthew to include this, this, this wife of Uriah, that he wanted us to remember the son of David, or the, the, who David was, this brokenness and this pain. He wasn't trying to cover up. He wanted us to remember that because as you go through the Old Testament, you see, you see the good and the evil. You see the wisdom and the foolishness. You see those who sinned and you see those who were sinned against. But what God does, make no mistake, about this is that he has the ability through his grace and his forgiveness to make even the most broken of pots, the most painful of situations into something remarkably beautiful. And he takes that sin and that brokenness and he puts it on top of this donkey, puts it on top of Jesus and they march toward Jerusalem, toward the cross and the resurrection, towards the beauty of God. One of the greatest examples that seems to me that I see of this here at ZPC is through um, what we do, uh, this thing called Great Banquet. I'm uh, not going to go into all the details. I don't think I'm telling any big secrets here. You've had a similar experience to this probably, even if you haven't gone through Great Banquet. One of the things that they do is that they simply have these speakers, and you know what they do? They describe their lives. And in the midst of that, almost always, there is sin and brokenness that is a part of that story. Sometimes it's sin and brokenness that they have been the cause of, and sometimes it's sin and brokenness that they have been the recipient of. And one of the first acts of beauty that you will notice is just simply their ability to be vulnerable in front of others. This is what we said last Sunday. The ability to simply confess is this incredibly beautiful act. But I think one of the most significant things occurs when those who are out there who have experienced the same kind of pain, maybe it's the same struggle that they have, or maybe it's the the same recipient of someone else's struggle that they have gone through or experienced. And when they come up to that person and they say, I have been there as well, that simple act, of recognition gives a sense of meaning and purpose to someone else's struggle and brokenness that is like putting gold to this piece of pottery and slowly but surely beginning to build up that which was once broken. And that act is this incredible reminder of how no matter how struggling or broken you are, that there is always something beautiful that God can do in the very midst of that. But I feel like it would almost be malpractice for me not to give you one warning, which is that you need to realize that the journey to wholeness and beauty beauty that God desires to take all of us on is never as fast as we want it to be. Please hear me. Confession, absolutely. Forgiveness, beyond the shadow of a doubt. When we give voice to what we have done, the Christ is able, to, is able to forgive and give us grace in that very moment. But the truth is this. The journey towards wholeness and beauty goes about as quickly as the pace of a donkey 
headed toward Jerusalem. Several years ago now, we talked about um, about this particular scene. I'll, I'll never forget about this, this conversation that we had together. And we talked about how the crowds, of course, were screaming and excited. There's all this hullabaloo. I mean, you can kind of picture it in your head. And they are ready. They're ready to rush into this thing. They are ready to rush into Jerusalem. They are ready to take over. And the bizarre juxtaposition of the crowds doing that while Jesus simply goes on this donkey in a way, in the refrain that we continue to use today, is steady, stable, and plodding. Steady, stable, and plodding. There is no fast way to wholeness and beauty. But what I'm convinced of is this. Whether we are the one who has cheated or the one who's been cheated upon, whether we are the one who continually lies or the one who seems that you are always the recipient of lies, whether or not you are the cause because of your bitterness and anger and fear and impatience of pain and brokenness to others, or whether, again, you continue to seem to be on the receiving end of these things, what I want you to know is this. That Jesus is taking all of those things and he's taking it upon this beast of burden and he is marching slowly toward a place of death and resurrection. And for those of us who have the courage and the patience to hold on, we will one day look back at this tapestry and we will see those small acts of encouragement that we have probably forgotten, those small words of hope, those small acts of hospitality, and we will see them. But what we will also see is our pain. What we will also see is our sin and our brokenness. But for those who have the eyes to see, when you begin to look more closely, when you begin to get even closer to this tapestry, you will see that that is also the golden thread that Christ has woven in and out into something that is even more beautiful than you could ever have imagined. Not because you have hidden from that sin or that brokenness or that pain, but because you have chosen to confess, you have chosen to endure, and you will see, sisters and brothers, one day you will begin to see how the death and the resurrection of Christ has taken all of those things, all of that brokenness, and has made it whole. And I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know where you've been over the last two weeks as we've talked about pain and sin and brokenness. But what I want you to know is that there is not one part of that God cannot make beautiful. So let us continue to journey with Jesus. Steady, stable, and plodding. Knowing that the Son of David, the one who died and was raised again, can always make beauty from his grace and his forgiveness. May it be so.
Amen.